0: wish you knew more about the medical device industry and how you can do your job more effectively and put your career on the fast track then stay tuned while industry veteran Pat Kothy shares strategies and tips from customers and company insiders who help drive the industry now let's join Pat as he explores how you can master medical device
1: welcome moving medical care out of the hospital or doctor's office and into the home It's been happening for years, uh, but it's really accelerated due to the pandemic. I think we all realize it's here to stay, and it provides some significant benefits. But it'll also probably disrupt some traditional relationships between patients, doctors, hospitals, IDNs, and payers. I'm really happy to have Kent Dix join us today to discuss Connected Health Uh, As as he's been involved in providing technology for remote patient monitoring, or RPM, since 2006. Kent is a thought leader in the space, and he's currently CEO of Life365, a leader in RPM. Prior to that, he founded MedApps, which was sold to Alir in 2012. Kent and I discussed some common terms used in Connected Health and their definitions, how the segments evolved, how consumer choice is affecting where medicine is and will be delivered, the role of RPM- uh, and, and how it, uh, it, it affects not only the patient but all the physician, also the physicians, uh, how RPM works uh, from patient enrollment and training to, uh, to the use, and then how it's uh, uh, implemented and integrated into a physician's office. And then finally we talk about the future of connected health. Here's our conversation. Kent welcome, so so happy to have you join us today.
0: Pat, thanks for having me on today. I really appreciate it.
1: So, Ken, I want to to take you back a little bit, Um, take you back uh, to 2007. 2007, the iPhone came out. But in 2006, you were, uh, I believe, running a staffing company, running a recruiting company, and uh, then formed a company in uh, virtual care. So what happened there?
0: It's an interesting story um, you know I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur from being a little kid I mean my grandfather influenced me instead of my father and I think I, st- I think my, my earliest entrepreneurial time i thought about was when I started when I was seven uh, when I was mowing yards and you know I was also on weekends but I was also at seven years old it's at eight years old I was getting up at 4:30 in the morning and delivering papers right you know going down back alleys the only thing I was scared of was dogs, right? You know, coming out. <laughs> I wasn't scared of people or anything else from that. Oh, I was scared about my brother stealing my paper out money, but that's about it at the time. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I went through, you know, into high school and then I went into college and thought I'm, I'm going to get a business degree, right? From that, and uh, went to work for Texas Instruments. I, I graduated with a computer information systems degree. And then eventually worked there for two years in Dallas, and then went to American Express here in Arizona, and worked for ten years for them as a programmer. Um, I left American Express in 1996, and they called me back right away and said, you know, can you? I left as a manager. Can you come back and be a senior consultant for us and only stay a couple months? Well, I ended up staying two years, Um, but they also allowed me to start a consulting firm while I was at American Express. So I brought in you know, 10 of my my closest friends as consultants and, you know, uh, brought in, you know, and, and leased them out to American Express as a consultant. When I left American Express two years later, I had to leave because, you know, the consulting business was really taking off. We ended up, by the time we sold the business in 2008, uh, we had put over 800 people, right, uh, in placements. And we'd done over 60 to $70 million in business. We We sold the business to another staffing company. But during that time frame, in like the 2001, 2002 timeframe, we started transitioning over from just doing IT consulting, but doing top secret and secret engineers, right, for Orbital, General Dynamics, and other people. So as we were starting to put people in, I started learning more because I was a a FSO, a field security, facility security officer, and clearing people. Um, I learned about where the military was headed. Uh, It's all declassified now, but they're going to be heading into remotely monitoring people in theaters, you know, in different parts of the world. They wanted biometric information coming from soldiers, you know, from that standpoint, the soldier of the future. Drones were just now starting to be thought of. In fact, one of our consulting gigs we got with the military and military contractors Was up in Minot, North Dakota, where where we were actually recruiting kids that played video games, right, to uh, be the drone operators, right, because they were the best drone operators. So during that time, you know, we learned a lot about remote monitoring. And I started a, you know, I was approached by somebody about could you interface a Bluetooth device, medical device, to a smartphone? And I said, yeah, we'll do that. We'll work on it, and we did. And that's where. It started to become more interesting. We started working with McKesson. We started working with other people, and that's where MedApps got formed. At the same time, I had my staffing company go. So we sold the staffing company and we went forward with MedApps. We filed over 75 patents on the MedApps technology we created. We thought we were going to go the direction of just interfacing a medical device to a smartphone. So you talked about smartphones coming out in 2007, but then we quickly realized that these, these smartphones are expensive. We wanted to go to um, underserved populations uh, in rural locations, and uh, we found that smartphones were getting stolen, hawked, used for other things. You know, Napster was around at the time; they're downloading music instead of actually using it for um, you know for getting uh, information from the, the smartphone. So we created a special device. I called it a non hawkable device that was called the HealthPal. It had a cellular chip in it, we built the hardware, we built all the firmware that went with it, we built all the firmware over the air, right, to distribute it, and we talked to dozens of medical devices, uh, wirelessly on Bluetooth. We were one of the first IoT, what they call IOMT, Internet of Medical Things, that's out there in the industry. We got significant amount of awards, significant amount of patents on that. We eventually were acquired by a publicly traded company, a which was a $5.5 billion company, uh, I became CEO of the Lear Connect division. And my responsibility was to pipe and connect everything together from, you know, the rapid diagnostic side of the business to the population health side of the business, to the coagulation side, to the diabetes side, and feed it all into the HIE, the health information exchange. That was our responsibility. We left in 2015 when Abbott and United or Optum bought parts of Allier and kind of split it up um, and filed another massive amount of patents because we knew the next generation of technology was not going to be schlepping all this equipment around like scales and blood pressure and everything else. The next was going to be, we needed to get to broader populations of patients in a very economical way, but with disposable sensors and patches and be a data as a service to be able to go through and get data from the home to drive it through analytic and AI systems so we can manage those large populations remotely, right? To do that. So a lot of things we learned in the first company to this company, we learned, you know, that, you know, we call the first company RPM 2.0, Remote Patient Monitoring 2.0. 1.0 was the boxes like Bosch's that, and Honeywell's that plugged into a phone line and were like $4,000 for the kit and you had to bring them in and refurbish them. RPM 2.0 is what we as a company started with with MedApps, which is, you know, Intel went out and created a 23 pound box, like a computer to monitor people. We created an eight ounce device to monitor people. So we knew that devices needed to be smaller. And then RPM 3.0 is wearable sensors and patches that allow us to get to a large population of patients, but in a very economical manner. And that's where we're at today with Light 365.
1: Well, it's been really a, a fascinating journey uh, that we've all kind of taken uh, over the years to, to get to this, this virtual care uh, that we, we talk about. Uh, a lot is, uh, has been talked about with telemedicine and telehealth and things, especially just coming uh, through this pandemic right now. But in, in general, how do you view um, this virtual medicine? How, how, how is it divided up uh, in your mind?
0: Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up from now and then go backwards, right, a little bit on this. Because one thing coming up with the pandemic, the way that I kind of put the pandemic is it just accelerated everything that was on a glide path anyway, right from that. So it's not just healthcare that it accelerated. We all know that the pandemic accelerated overnight telehealth, right? Because that's the only way you can see your doctor. Right. RPM wasn't so fortunate, you know, in that because people are like the, the COVID-19 was happening so quickly that, you know, you couldn't use RPM really to monitor RP, uh, COVID-19 patients um, because uh, trying to schlep the equipment out and get it back and clean it up and give it to somebody else was a was a concern. But you could use it right, to try to keep people monitored and out of the hospital, out of the emergency room. That have multiple chronic diseases to try to keep them healthy and away from it, but not just to monitor the COVID patients, if that makes sense. We had everything set up from call centers. We have a relationship with AMR ambulance. Um, Their paramedics could go out and they could go install it and they could monitor from the nurse call centers. But the hospitals were, there's a couple of things that happened during the pandemic. The hospitals were so busy with inpatient that they already had they really couldn't take on the outpatient side, that's why we bring AMR in. And the other thing they were complaining about is they just didn't have the money because they couldn't do elective surgery. COVID was costing them a lot of money uh, in the space as well. So RPM you know, really didn't take a real big foothold during, you know, during the COVID-19 phase, but it's starting to now. And the one thing I wanna go back onto is this acceleration. Like I said, it's not just healthcare, it's how we eat food how we have de- food delivered to our front door how we get transportation to and from work or to or to the airport um, how or other places how we work now all that has changed and accelerated which i kind of call the new normal right that's out there we are seeing what we liked you how we exercised and how we ate and how we you know how we participated in work and how we could just Hop on sessions like this and get going right away. We didn't have to have destinations where we went to to be able to do it. We could do it from the comfort of our own home right to do do that as well, and that's what you're going to see more of. but the interesting part too, I'll just delve into this as well as well. Shopping malls are changing, right? you know the way we shop, you're seeing major shopping malls, and we saw this starting to occur five years ago. you know you really don't go anymore to a shopping mall just to shop for clothes you're doing that now a lot online shopping malls are now going to be restaurants they're going to be anchored by commercial real estate on one end and residential real estate on the other end they're going to have hospitals in the middle they're going to have faith-based organizations they're going to have restaurants they're going to have clothing it's going to be like little cities right that you're going to have and that's what they're going to build more and more of in the future you're not just going to have destination shopping in the future and healthcare has to be you know part of that combination as well right um so you're connected you can go physically to healthcare if you want in the location or you can be remotely you know monitored at work or at home or mobile
1: let's let's uh define a couple of terms uh, that that we hear out there quite a bit telemedicine in your mind what is telemedicine you know that was I'm
0: saying I've been in this industry for fifteen years and I even had to go through my mind, you know, over the last couple of years, what the true definitions were. But I think they've gotten clearer in my mind a little bit. I don't use the terms. I'll get to telemedicine in a second. I don't use the terms M health anymore. I don't use. I mean, I talk about digital health, but that's just globally everything that's out there. It could be halter monitors. It could be remote patient monitoring. It could be telemedicine. It could be telehealth. Other things. Telemedicine to me, you know, is a point-to-point solution typically between, uh, you know, providers, or it could be from a CVS to, you know, to a provider someplace. It could be a rural location to a provider, but typically using, you know, equipment that is, you know, more professional grade equipment to be able to do observations from one provider to another provider. It could be two-way video. It could be using otostopes, stethoscopes, you know, Um, ECGs, anything that a doctor needs to be able to do an examination on you locally. um, That's where I see telemedicine. It could be, like I said, in rural locations, it could be on a ship, it could be on an airplane, but it's going typically for an exam from a physician from one location to the other. Telehealth is, in my mind, is two-way video, right? That you're having, you know, like you and I are seeing each other right now, that you could have a conversation with your doctor uh, as a patient to a doctor and have a telehealth visit instead of going to the doctor's office. A lot of people will lump in telehealth with remote patient monitoring as well uh, from that because they're seeing vital signs. There is aspects in telehealth of getting vital signs in, but that's the act of remote patient monitoring. Remote patient monitoring is typically equipment that you are giving out to patients uh, that are connected outside the point of care someplace. It could be mobile, it could be in the home, it could be in the office, uh, but then the data is sent to the cloud for something or someone to observe, right, from that. So when I start, start saying something or someone, it could be in the near future, or right now, it could be machine learning or, or AI or analytic systems that are overseeing you, and then just bringing it to the attention of the doctor, right, that there's an anomaly of your data comparing your data to you. Right from that standpoint, or it's just out of whack based on parameters that have been set. Virtual care, right, is kind of to me the overall uh, overarching, although digital health was, is the overarching of creating a care situation where you're actually virtually receiving care either through telemedicine or remote patient monitoring or uh, telehealth. And it could be prescribing medication, it could be titrating. You know, medication, it could be changing procedures or diagnostics from that. It's all that you are under the care of somebody, but you are creating a virtual care environment. It's done remotely or virtually
1: as you as you described it uh, we're not we're not going to talk uh, much about the telemedicine side of things because what the way you describe it, it's more of a pipeline between clinicians. Uh, the telehealth is what what we just went through with with the pandemic, changing some rules to allow it to be more uh, used more um more frequently and easier and i think those rules have been rolled back let's let's uh, explore that a little bit about how that occurred within the pandemic and you said that we, we were sliding you know, we're, we're going in that direction to begin with is is that kind of accelerated and made it in people's mind to be a more commonplace scenario
0: i think you know there was a there's a wave that was already occurring prior to the pandemic which was a switch to um, consumer-based care. You know, the one thing that we realized going forward is that in the future, providers are really not going to be the people that make the decision on how care is administered, how it's administered and where it's administered. Because the consumer is going to vote with their their dollars of how they receive care and where they receive care. Um, It's really going to be determined here in the future. It's already starting to be that way. And it started really with HSAs a lot as well. Is that um, the the payers and the consumers will be the people that decide how health, healthcare is administered? And you can already see that people have voted in a certain way to go through and and uh, embrace uh, embrace that a, a certain way. They they've got Minute Clinics, they've got you know ready clinics that are out there, CVS, Walgreens, you know, Walmart. You know, has clinics where consumers can choose, you know, to go there instead of going to their general, their uh, their PCP or their general practitioner. Um, you know, companies like Lemonade Health are are starting up. You know, Hims and Hers, Roman, you know, that's out there as well. These are these are telehealth applications that are have been started up because consumers demanded to be engaging with the healthcare providers a certain way. So this is what's making providers incredibly itchy. Uh, from this standpoint, is because, you know, first of all, all this that we've been talking about so far is creeping outside the four walls of the hospital. So, how do you control it outside the point of care? Second of all, you're telling me now that I have, as a provider, I have no control of who I see and don't see, but I have still have to work, be on call 24 7, and I still have to work 16 hour days, right? It's not a very pleasant experience for providers, and I really empathize with them. But you got to look and see the other trends that are occurring now too. risk and value-based care, you know, has been emerging as well. And, you know, I I have this one chart I kind of show that shows these trillion dollar or multi hundred billion dollar channels that are emerging, you know, in the marketplace, they all kind of start with telehealth, but the telehealth companies are kind of aligning with the payers, right? From this standpoint, And they're wanting to get closer to the consumer and they're wanting to cut out the provider in between and take control more of the cost, right? Associated, you know, that a provider would normally have control over. So instead of walking to the hospital and getting, you know, a bill for a million dollars for COVID, they may have the ability to combat it for $20,000 based on their resources, right? So these trillion dollar channels, you're seeing like TeleDoc, align with, you know, Livongo, you're seeing Humana, you know, aligning with Heal. You're seeing, uh, you know, Optum United aligning with Vivify and, you know, uh, Amazon with Transcarent. You know, there's a lot of these channels, Cigna with MD Live, a lot of these channels that are emerging, they're not going to share with each other patients. They're in competition with each other. They're right now doing more episodic care than most, right? They're going through, like the Teledocs are really still going through and saying, I'm going to treat colds and flus. They're really haven't made a big push into chronic care. Now, Vivify United have, but the other, other channels really haven't got into the chronic care side, which is the reoccurring revenue side of the business. It's the bigger side of the business. But for them to be able to be able to do chronic conditions, they've got to get data and connectivity. Through the digital front door of the patient into the patient's home and connect to them on a regular basis to be able to do that uh, and to engage them and get regular vital signs and give early insights into what really is happening with Kent Dix, right? On a regular basis. I want some insights, right? Is he doing okay or not doing okay? So I see these marketplaces as platforms that are going into communities to take, to cherry pick and take off the best patients out of communities. Now, if you think of a provider, a provider, like I have a hospital two miles away from me, they typically get their patients from the surrounding area, right? People will go, I'll go to, you know, Honor Health at 92nd Street uh, because it's, uh, it's two miles away from me. That's where I always go. I'm not going to go 20 miles away. Well, if you have the teledocs of the world coming in and all those other guys coming in, they're cherry picking out Kent Dix and, you know, and Pat and other people. It's actually worse than we, we think. They're cherry picking off the people that have the ability to pay and leaving the people in the community that don't have the ability to pay. And those go to the hospital systems, right? Instead that are locally there. Sure, we're still gonna go to hospitals because we have needs, you know, from that standpoint, maybe I have to be in the hospital, but the transparent model and the hospital models are gonna change. TransCarent went out and bought with Amazon, went out and bought a surgery center that has over 300 different surgery centers in it, and they send you to a surgery center to get your surgery, and then they transition you home, right, instead, instead of transitioning you into a hospital. So the hospital loses the surgery, the hospital loses all the aftercare from that as well. Where we have to get brilliant on this is that anything that would have been provided to me when I'm in the hospital, hospital now has to be transitioned to home. So hospital, home, needs to have food, security, medic, you know, whatever I get in the hospital now needs to start being at home under some of those initiatives. And that's where we see the growth opportunity. Once again, on the hospital side of it, the provider side, I think they're in trouble. Part of it is ego as well, too. I've heard been around a lot of, you know, uh, senior executives in hospital systems that are just saying, no, we'll be completely full right, from that standpoint for years to come. I don't necessarily see that's going to be the case, right, from this, because the consumers have options. It's gone over to a consumer-based economy. The telehealth companies are starting to cherry-pick people off. Um, Other companies are starting to go at risk with populations to take care of Kent Dix. Transcarent's going to go, if you're under my program, you know, and I'm going to large self-insured employers, I'm going to control the cost where you go. Right, So I'm not going to send you to Honor Health because they're going to give me a million-dollar bill. I'm going to send you to my surgery center, and I'm going to send you to an aftercare or to a SNF uh, to have pre-negotiated rates on that. And then you're going to go home, and I'm going to help you with that care at home, and it's going to be a fraction of the cost right? that we can save. So I think, you know, Pat, there's a big, big issue going to be coming up here real shortly.
1: So the… The old the old model is you go to you choose your physician you go to the physician and the, phys, you know, and, and the physician chooses to use technology to do that. What you're saying is that that choice of the the initial choice of the physician may not be in in the consumer's hands anymore.
0: It, no, I think the consumers are going to choose the physician, right? I mean, I think that the consumers have their their ability to do that. I think they're going to give they're going to give um, the payer is going to give them a certain amount of money almost like HSA, and they can go choose their physician, right, from, from that standpoint. But it may be within a, a network, right, from that perspective. Out of network is probably going to be a lot more expensive. But I still think the consumers could going to be able to, ch- to choose their, their physician. I personally have changed a little bit, but my wife and I probably seven, eight years ago fired our, our general physician because they're making us come in to get an exam come back to get tests and then come back in to get test results. And that, cause that's how they got paid. And you and I know both that you and I both don't have the time. Cause we're not, we weren't in town long enough to be able to, when we're traveling to be able to go back for three separate, you know, three separate occasions. So guess what happens? You don't get the test. You don't get, you know, that, that slip of paper that the doctor gives you to go get the test or whatever stays in the back of your car on your desk for months before you go do it. And it's just not healthy for you to do. So, you know, we fired the the physician and we ended up going, at that time, minute clinics or, you know, if we had, you know, the cold or flu or whatever, we went to a minute clinic instead. But we still had our specialists, right? My wife still had her specialists and I still had my specialists, like cardiologists and, and, and others uh, that are out there, for cardiologists mainly. Um, so I think the cardiologists are going to be, or the specialists are going to be a fairly protected class of individuals. Um, you know, I I think they're even better if they're not associated with a health system, right? From that standpoint, if they're more independent, but I think they're a good class of citizens. I think the doctors are going to be the ones that are the general GPs and PCPs are going to be the ones that are going to be hurting. And I think they're going to have to transition over to telehealth. They're going to have to, you know, go through and and start taking in, ZocDoc helps with it, but they're gonna to have to start taking in telehealth visits to be able to fill up their practice. I, I, that's just my, my thinking because a lot of consumers, especially when you're starting to talk about millennials, millennials don't give a, a, a whinge, all right, about if they go to the same G, PCP that's out there, right? They wanna make sure it's cost-effective and they wanna make sure that you know, they get care, right? From that standpoint and as long as it's going to somebody that's reputable you know and they do what they want them to do that's the key they do what they want them to do um, then you know they're going to go probably to be very comfortable with a telehealth visit maybe the older population isn't as comfortable with a telehealth visit but you know and i'm talking about a population that's 80 70 80 90 years old i'm 60 but i've grown up with this and i've grown up with technology as well i am demanding that I sit behind my computer screen and I have a conversation with my PCP or with my specialist on a regular basis. um, And then maybe go in once a year, right? Or or it could be twice a year, but once a year or as needed to do an in-person visit. But the rest of the time with technology and being able to phone in your blood pressure or you know, or track your blood pressure or your glucose or other things that you can be part of the electronic health record. I think it can all be done hybrid. It's going to be done hybrid in the future.
1: We, we kind of had a grand experiment uh, over the past year where there was a lot more uh, telehealth visits than there were previously. And, and data always drives change. H- have we seen the data that has come back from that experience?
0: The only thing I've seen initially was like initially in March of 2020, um, we went from like a 12% penetration of telehealth to a 70%, like almost overnight, right? From that, I mean, telehealth companies were scrambling to, if you had telehealth, you're getting installed, right? They're scrambling to get installed um, out there. It went back down to about 40 or 45%, but that's still a huge jump year over year from 12 to to 40 or 45%, Um, that signals that not only the doctors got comfortable with it, but the consumers got comfortable with it, right, as well. Um, And it's interesting, you know, I just heard this the other day that with one of our health systems we're working with, the doctors were kind of fighting tooth and nail in March of 2020, right, about doing telehealth visits. They're like, we can't give the best care to our patients because we need to see them in person, but it was the only way they could do that. Now, today, that's the only way they want to see them. They want to see them virtually unless they need to see them face-to-face. Right? So what
1: were the changes during COVID? There's changes to reimbursement. There's changes to licensing across states. What other changes were, were, uh, were made?
0: So we were under the PHE, right, the public health health emergency. And the public health emergency, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I'll just try to do it the best I can. Um, if under COVID situations, uh, under remote patient monitoring, under typical remote patient monitoring, you had to have 16 days of readings to get re- reimbursed, right, for a chronic condition, at least two chronic conditions, at least using one wirelessly or connected device, right, that goes to the cloud. Uh, you'd be able to um, be reimbursed for connectivity, you'd be able to be reimbursed for the first 20 minutes, you know, of monitoring a patient during the month and the next 20 minutes, but you had to have 16 readings coming in. Under the PHE with COVID. And it was COVID-related. It only required two days, right? Of reading, that was it. Um, but also, to your point, licensure was extended, right? There were already, I think, thirty-five states that had compacts between them so that they could share nursing resources and between states to be able to do that. But a lot of the other states signed waivers um, to be able to um, to to talk with uh, with patients remotely. So our, the RPM side of it, the reimbursement codes. We thought would go up this year they went up a little bit uh, you know in 2021 and i believe they're going to be about the same in 2022 as of january 2022 but the bigger thing that's occurred that's coming out is rtm codes so remote therapeutic codes those are similar to rpm code or you know rpm codes um, but they're not related to vital sign biometric data they're uh, related more to uh, engagement and adherence, compliance, right, from that. So any way to be able to engage a patient or get a patient compliant, like med reconciliation, right, to be able to do that for the medication, you know, is billable uh, under the RTM codes, right? But, you know, I can talk loosely about this right now because they really haven't figured out, uh, you know, completely what those codes look like until January 1st. I personally wrote a, a letter of opinion to CMS, you know, to be able to go through and give our opinion on what the codes should look like and a lot of thought leaders in the space did as well.
1: Remote patient monitoring. Let's dig into that a little bit. What exactly is being monitored?
0: On an RPM side of it, I mean, we, we have a system that, that interfaces to over 300 different medical devices. and. You know, when I talk about medical devices, you know, it's, uh, we integrate to scales and blood pressure and pulse ox and glucometers and, you know, ECG, like we're the only company that interfaces to a live core cardio mobile ECG and spirometers, you know, from that thermometers. So, you know, why 300? Because there's different brands and different quality of data, right? That's out there. You may see some RPM companies that have Five devices. They may have a scale of blood pressure, a pulse oximeter, glucose, and a thermometer, and that's all they offer. Right? Is five devices from one manufacturer, maybe from China. And when we get to a health system, a physician will go, "I don't like the quality of data coming out of those devices. Give me something different." And they may be more comfortable with Massimo, A and D, Nanan, you know, and such, right? That's out there. And so our Omron. So we can actually give them another, maybe a more high-quality device. To be able to use to give their quality of data. Let me just talk about quality of data just for a second, um, because it's really super important. A lot of times people will go through and say, "I need the most accurate data there is," you know, to know Pat's heart rate, his exact heart rate, his exact blood pressure, his exact glucose. Um, and some applications of healthcare do need to have that exact quality of data and, and accuracy of data. Others, there's an opportunity to do exception-based processing and actually comparing pat to pat, right? So you could use potentially a little bit less accurate device, still FDA cleared, that maybe is with off within 2% or 3%. um, And some of the less expensive devices uh, will, will be that way. It's a tolerance by the FDA. But you're only comparing that number. You're not showing it to the patient. You're not showing it to the clinician. You're showing it to AI or machine learning and going, okay, he's trending now, right, on this kind of stuff, and he's trending up by 10% per day, even if it's off by 2%, Um, we should let somebody know and then use an FDA device to truly measure them, right? And that's where I think that you get opportunities, right, to measure um, greater populations of patients by using a a tier one and a tier two approach. Tier one is let me give them a, a less expensive medical device. It could just be one, right, a pulse oximeter, uh, and in fact, we did that with my mom. We did a Paul oximeter She was always 92, 93, 92, 93. And then one night she was 75. And why was she 75? Because COVID, right? COVID took her down to 75. We didn't have to have any other parameters, right? That are out there, uh, instead of just that one, uh, from that, that's what we, we worried about. So, you know, I could have a long dissertation about quality of data and everything else, but we want to be able to give uh, clinicians the choice to choose from from it. And we want to be able to scale to larger populations economically with different qualities of data. So when we're doing RPM, you know, and all those devices that are going on with it as well, we can put them combined together to go after certain disease states that are costing, you know, a, a significant amount of money. So it could be congestive heart failure where, you know, Providers are getting dinged for 30 day readmits. It could be diabetes. It could be hypertension. It could be, you know, COPD, asthma. You know, those are traditional hypertension, the traditional frequent flyer ones that typically can put you into the hospital and exacerbate and cost more down the road. But they're not limited to that. They could be used with oncology. It could be used with kidney care. You know, in fact, you know, we're seeing a big, you know, update or uptick in kidney care right from that because kidney care as of january 1st nephrologists are going to be more on the hook you know for reimbursing or for sorry more on the hook for um risk right when they get reimbursed right from that so they want to make sure people are are staying out of the hospital right on a regular basis
1: so Kent, th- those devices are uh, connected how
0: so the devices that we typically have, those three or four hundred we're talking about, are typically wireless Bluetooth uh, that talk to a smartphone. They could have embedded cellular inside of them, right? So we have scales and blood pressure and glucometers that have uh, cellular built inside. Um, on some of you know, you've got to look at you know the situation of when you're going to monitor a population. When we typically go into a population, most people don't care about the brand of scale, the brand of, of glucometer, the brand of pulse oximeter or thermometer, but they do care about the brand of glucometer, right? Um, a lot of times people, you know, it could be the VA, it could be other, um, other organizations that are out there have already contracted with the large glucometer makers. Uh, and sometimes they give them the most, the cheapest glucometer and the cheapest strips that are out there. And it might be that they have no connectivity other than a connected wire right from it so in that case we have to plug in a wire to the glucometer and then either plug it in the back of our system or we have to convert it to bluetooth with a little dongle right to have it connect to the phone from it so you know it's typically bluetooth but it can also be serial wired as well
1: so every every patient is going to have different internet, uh, different, uh, technology, um, uh, skills. Uh, how do you, how do you go about training somebody to use it and, and, uh, uh, assessing whether they're capable of using it?
0: Yeah. So that's, that's a really super good point. And that is the main friction point. I'll talk about friction points, you know, in this industry, friction points are things that cause things not to scale, right. Uh, especially from an RPM perspective. Um, there's a couple different friction points. Friction points are, if a clinician has to put in an order for an RPM solution, then has to decide which one to deploy uh, to a patient, like who's gonna be able to use it, who's not gonna be able to use it, It may not get ordered, right? Um, If you have to decide how it gets distributed to the patient, that's another friction point. If you have to see the data in another system, it doesn't float back into the clinical system, that's another friction point. If you have to engage the patient separately to use it, that's another friction point. So the more that you can go through, and this is what we've tried to do, the more you can go through and eliminate those friction points, get automatic order entry, try to use machine learning or artificial intelligence to try to align the right solution with the right patient to get the right outcome at the right cost, right? Engage them in the care, then put the data back into the clinical backend system. Um, that's going to cause you to start scaling, right, from this. So how do you go through, um, get all styles of users and types of users to try to engage in it? And it's no easy task. That's why we've gone through and offered uh, what we call a BYOD or an app that you can download and connect to 100 different medical devices. Well, that app may be okay for me or for you or for millennials that are out there to use, but maybe it's not okay. It wasn't okay for my dad. My dad didn't have a smartphone. My dad wasn't on the grid. It could be a certain user doesn't, it's just too techy for them to pair devices and, you know, and try to use it. So that's great. There's the next level we go to, which is cellular enabled devices. And all we have to do on that is ship a scale or a blood pressure or a glucose meter out to the patient. No app, no phone. It just arrives and it's connected and sends the data into the clinical backend system. That's easy as can be. So you decide in the case with my dad, I'm like, we'll put them on that, right, instead. On option three is a hub that we use, and we have a, a neat little one that's coming in now that you can actually wear around your neck it also acts as a purse device, but it's also an Android, progr- Android program with Bluetooth on it that can run our connected device program and talk to all the medical devices around it and send the data automatically to the cloud from a hub. No hands-on, no phone, no nothing. So what was the difference between cellular and between the hub? Because the hub can talk to 300 different devices with our program. The cellular only has three devices that it's embedded into. And then the fourth one is our tablet solution, which is, you know, ability to have two-way video on it, you know, survey questions, interface to 300 different medical devices. And that's more for people that just want complete systems to be able to talk to their doctor totally hands off. Uh, it's, you know, it's already bundled into a kit. We make this easier with to reduce the friction points by taking all this equipment and don't just shove it into a, a brown box. We put it into a nice kit, a carrying case kit that has a scale a blood pressure a pulse ox and tablet or hub that's inside of it. And so it can easily be stored and put away if you want to. Most of the time they're going to keep it out or it can be returned back to us. The fifth option is wearable devices and sensors. Right, so that we can go through and uh, be able to connect with patients through wearable devices, you know that they can uh, wear as a wristband, or they can you know, have a patch that goes on their chest, or they can have a sensor that's located on them somewhere. It can talk to other devices, you know, it can talk. A, a patch could talk to a wearable, wearable device, but we want to make it as easy as possible to deploy that technology with a patient. From my perspective. I don't mind the doctor having examinations saying, you know, on discharge, Earl, we want you to go home, but we're going to give you this patch to wear. And for the next 72 to 96 hours, you know, our telemetry system, our nurses are going to be monitoring from home, but don't worry about it. Just wear the patch, right? Go in the shower if you want to. Do your normal thing. You don't have to step on anything. We'll, We'll be watching you from a distance. And then after 96 hours, we'll call you and you can take the patch off and throw it away. That gets them outside the golden hour of returning back to from a readmission to the hospital. So it's not easy to go back to your original thing. It's been the problem with scaling in this industry. But I think that AI and machine learning and alignment of the right solutions is going to be a really true help in the future.
1: So we've discussed uh, what's going on from the patient's location. What's going on at the physician's location? What what is that dashboard? What does that software look like there? And how does it integrate into into their systems?
0: So the physicians are crazy busy in their practices a lot of times. The physician themselves, an average physician has about 2,000 patients in their practice, maybe 2,500. A value proposition You know, of going through and saying, "Hey, we can deliver another 500 to 1,000 patients for you to into your practice by monitoring them." Sometimes is attractive from a revenue perspective, but daunting from a workload perspective, right? So, you know, the progressive physician practices that are out there know that they have to switch over to virtual care. They just know that's the only way they're going to get new uh, patients coming in. Especially if you're a GP. Specialists are different, but GPs and if they set it up correctly they would have medical assistants or physician's assistants to be the people that are responsible for two or 300 patients each right and monitor them you know on a, a daily weekly or a monthly basis right and, and then they can bill for it right so i think the average they've sh- shown is that pa that takes in you know two or 300 patients extra in, into it can generate another potentially up to another half a million dollars in revenue for the physician practice. So that should not, um, if it's set up correctly, that should not cause a lot more concern to the physician, right, from a workload perspective. They would only intervene if they needed to, like they normally would, if the PA couldn't handle it, right, or the MA couldn't handle it. They'd only bring them the obsession the base to them. So you, it, it's disruptive, to their practice, but so were electronic health records right as well. Um, and so was telehealth. I, I really say that physicians want to get more to the Uber model. And the Uber model is they want to turn on and off to go see their kid's soccer game, right? And not be on call and be able to you know, go out for two hours and then come back and maybe go back online for another three hours in the evening, if they have time, once they put the kids to, to bed, they wanna choose their hours when they work. It's not always possible, right? In their practices to be able to do that. But when you become a telehealth doc, a lot of times it is. So that's why you're seeing people switch over to become telehealth docs, right? Because they can go on and off when they wanna put time into it. The biggest complaint we saw when we worked with with Mayo Clinic is that they love the fact that you know, they can connect to people on platforms outside the community and bring in diverse populations and bring in, you know, people, um, you know, that need to have care, but their physicians are already overloaded. And the average physician spends 80 minutes a night um, updating the electronic health record with notes from the day. They're already overburdened, you know, even when they're not on the clock, they're overburdened at night just trying to complete their records right so they don't miss somebody their biggest fear also is that they get over 500 emails a day right maybe it's an exaggeration but that's what they tell me and they don't know which one's the critical one to look at now there are systems out there there's software that's being made so it could actually go through and and learn from the emails and try to bump it into a top of a queue to try to get it there but it really worries them that something's stuck in the queue and they they're not able to get to it, right, in a timely manner.
1: So let's talk about regulation for a second. Um, Life 365 Health, are you a, a regulated medical device product, or are you integrating regulated medical devices?
0: So Life 365 Health itself, by providing hubs and smartphones and tablets you know, and wearable devices that are out there that act like a hub, uh, falls under the MDDS and the American Cares Act. Right, that's out there. That we are a conduit. We are not, although we have a quality system that we work within. We do not have to be FDA cleared. We use FDA cleared devices, but we don't have to because we're not going through and changing the data or making a, a correlate, you know, algorithm to the data to point it out to the physicians. All we're doing is going through and saying when the doctor says tell me when their weight gets above 200 pounds, just let me know. We let them know that the weight got above 200 pounds. We're not saying anything more than that.
1: So the physician is setting, setting the limits and and they're looking for outliers. But as, as, as you described, you know, some of the AR and AI and machine learning stuff, uh, that's kind of where the gold is, isn't it? That that's, uh, that's where you're going to start looking at, at uh, changes is, is that, Still within um, life three sixty five, or is that something that's in the physician's side?
0: Yeah, so well, I mean, I see us as a tool or an aid to the physician, right? Uh, from that, so ultimately, it's going to be a, a tool that helps them do their job better or alert them to do their job better. When I see, you know, machine learning or artificial intelligence, obviously, it needs a massive amount of data to be smart. But a lot of people use it to do more in the predictive analytics side of the business, to go through and say, you know, Kent Dix has had three irregular, irregular heart rates over the last, you know, four days. Last time he did this, he, God forbid, he had a heart problem right from it. That's going to that's be FDA cleared, right? That, that's going to have to, if you're making those type of correlations. When we start talking about the machine learning and, and AI side of this, I'm talking about using data insights, the data that flows through our system, de-identified data that learns, you know, the difference between what engages Pat to be uh, engaged in his care versus Kent. And that doesn't have to be FDA cleared because I'm just doing insights to go through and say, well, I'm gonna recommend a smartphone app to Kent, right? From this, I'm gonna recommend a tablet or a wearable to Pat because based on his demographics and everything he's doing, and its compliance ratio. I think you would do better from an adherence basis than Kentwood.
1: Kent, let's talk a little bit about the business side of things in in RPM. Who owns the devices? Does a patient buy the devices? Is it the physician own it? Is a lease model? What what's the model look like?
0: The answer is uh, yes, right uh, to that because it really depends on the customer and how they want to structure uh, projects or, or programs. The one thing I will say about RPM and where we've got to today, uh, we've actually crossed that preface, um, that breach, that boundary, where devices are becoming so economical now that it doesn't warrant going and picking them up and, and refurbishing them and sending them back out to another patient. In the, in the initial days of RPM, when things were costing a lot more money, I mean, a pulse oximeter used to cost me $450, right, Bluetooth one years ago, um, but now it costs $30. You know, if you talk about having to go out, ship it out to a patient, $30 bucks to do that, ship it back, 30 bucks. cleaning it up, 70 bucks, right? to do it and put it back in inventory, it's not worth it to do that. It's better to just leave it with the patient um, and say, this is great, this is yours, right? It depends on the program. If you have programs that are 30-day readmit programs and they turn around pretty tightly and pretty quickly, and you're only going to be monitoring for 30 or 60 days, it's it's not that economical to do some of this stuff. But uh, if you know the economics between a congestive heart failure patient, you've got to look at the longer cycles. Like a congestive heart failure patient, you as a hospital system may be worried or a payer that they're going to readmit back in the next 30 days and you get disincented through HEDIS rating, STAR ratings, reimbursement that's out there and you're only going to monitor for those 30 days but a typical congestive heart failure patient's probably going to go back in the hospital three or four times during the year or have episodes and you want to try to at least eliminate one or two of those along the way or get early insights to try to eliminate uh so that so instead of giving equipment to somebody and then bringing it back and then giving it back to them and bringing it back just let them have the equipment right leave it connected let them do self-management with them and then the times that are in between monitor them right from that to, to keep them connected. So it could be a lease program that our clients pay for with us as a PMPM PM or per member per month. It could be they're buying the equipment and then paying us connectivity fee. There's a whole host of things that they could do. It could be they're looking at the data in our portals, right? It could be that they're we're sending data into their electronic health record through an interface into the EHR into you know, Epic or all scripts and they're looking at the data in their system, or it could be that we're sending it through APIs into uh, another clinical system, right, from that standpoint. So it really depends on the customer and what kind of program they're putting together.
1: Approximately how much reimbursement does some does a physician get for RPM patient?
0: So, you know, there I have the exact codes here, but I'm just I'm just gonna say it briefly. There's, you know, there's one code that allows you to get a training code. Right, so if you give out the equipment at your office and give it to a patient, uh, you can get a trading code, and I think that's nineteen dollars, nineteen nineteen for a one-time code. Um, there's another code which is, um, you know, 90, 99454, uh which allows for connectivity. That's the one that requires sixteen days of of readings, two, you know, chronic conditions, you know, one at least one medical device. Um, And it's $63, I think the right number is $63 a month uh, for that, Uh, but then you've got to subtract 20% copay. So the net amount is roughly around $50, $51 that is netted out of there uh, from that uh, to, I mean, the whole $63 is is netted to the physician, the $20, 20% for copay, uh, but also the $51 for connectivity. But what a lot of RPM companies do is they'll walk in and say, okay, let's, we'll get paid out of 99.454. You keep the 20% copay on that. We'll take the rest of it, the $51, you know, and that pays for the equipment, the connectivity, the shipping, everything that kind of goes with it all in one, right? And then on 99.457 and 458, um, that is, you know, reimbursement codes for facility and non-facility and, um, you know, it ranges anywhere from 45 to $50 per 20-minute segment. If you did it right in this and bundled with other codes like uh, 99454 uh, and 99091, I believe it is, um, you could bill up to about $150 per month, right, for a single patient, including connectivity and the, and the minutes spent with a patient.
1: Ken, I, I want to focus uh, just a couple minutes on the future. Many of us have devices already. Uh, we call it uh, health and, and wellness devices or worried well devices. People can have their own ECGs. They can, you know, wear a Fitbit. They can wear an Apple Watch. Uh, you talked about the devices becoming cheaper uh, in the in the professional category that, that that you're in. As we make our way up from being a health and wellness into a, a chronic situation or an acute si- situation and have professional management of that there's real a crossover uh, of the devices there's crossover of the data what do you think that that's going to look like in the future
0: well i think the the biggest thing that's going to have to happen is it's going to have to be incredibly passive right it's going to have to be lay in the background um, and i think a lot of people are moving that direction you know, the Apple Watch, you know, that does, is going to do blood pressure here in the next couple of years. Uh, they'll say it does it now, but it's not FDA cleared. SpO2, ECG, it already does. Uh, like an all-in-one device that's out there. Having it in an all-in-one device is is awesome, right, to be able to do. Um, but will people be willing to pay for, you know, that device if it's more expensive? And And prices will most likely come down, right, from that as well. Um, but it's going to have to be, it's going to have to be passive in, the, passive in the background to be able to do stuff. I think, you know, it's the right direction for us to get rid of these kits that have, you know, scales and blood pressure and all that kind of stuff. And to go to a wearable device that is all in one, like an Apple watch or a Samsung or a Google or whatever, right. That's out there. That makes a whole heck of a lot of sense to me, but I think it's going to have to even get, by the time I think I leave this earth, um, I think that we will probably have a little tiny BB sensor that's implanted in us that does all of it, that, you know, it just radiates out. And then you've got big concerns, you know, about here's your data radiating out to spewing out to everybody. And is that a big HIPAA and privacy and everything else that kind of goes with it? I don't have a problem with it because I know that it'll be on encrypted channels, right, and only talking to my smartphone. but People will have a problem with data flying through the air. It does that today. So my big thing on that, it's going to, have to be, it's going to have to be passive. The other thing to kind of consider is, generally, consumers will not invest in their own health. They just won't.
1: They'll invest in their own sickness, but they won't invest in their own health.
0: Right, correct. Uh, and there's still a mentality, especially in this country, and I think, I don't want to get political, but I think that's where it's going to have to change. Is, you know, people have to be more responsible for their outcomes. If I decide to eat a cheese pizza every single night and go up to 350 pounds and have clogged arteries, we automatically expect the insurance company to be there and pay for it, even though it's a consequence of our own actions, right? From that. And I think you're going to see, you know, more and more that just like you do with a car, if you don't drive responsibly, your rates go up. Right. From that. Right. So, you know, again, I don't want to be political, but, you know, the people that decided not to get COVID-19 shots that are out there, you know, when, once they do get COVID, should the insurance company really pay for them? Right. Even though they paid into it. So, you know, I, I think there's going to be a lot of accountability from that perspective coming up.
1: Well, Kent, uh, this has been a fascinating discussion, and I really appreciate uh, your your perspective on there. Is there anything that you, any any message that you'd like to deliver to the fellow uh, medical device people that are out there?
0: Uh, just, and I always say that uh, just because you build it, they may not come, right? You know, when you're building something, you know, make sure you know who's going to use it, who's going to pay for it. This is not an industry where you go through and try to just build something and try to get people to use it right from, uh, you generally have to find a need right uh, to, that you're serving and it has to be economic right as well to make sure that it gets somebody's going to pay for it and it gets paid for it some way the other thing i would just say really quickly uh, with entrepreneurs that are coming into this is this industry doesn't adopt fast right uh, from that so you have to be and the investors know that um and the industry doesn't necessarily like to think broad either um it doesn't like to think about platforms even though there are healthcare platforms out there it likes to think very narrowly about a disease state and about an economics around a disease state and a go to market and how it's delivered and it's going that kind of mentality is going to have to change right over the next several years because the only way we're going to get economies to scale and to reduce friction points that we talked about is to now start leveraging platforms that are broader aspects of, you know, of the system, right, to be able to do that. Um, and people have to open up to that level of openness and risk.
1: Some people are all about the device and some people take a broader perspective. Kent is obviously one of those people who takes a broader perspective. He's not just a device guy. He's deeply connected to the way that medicine is delivered and who is and will be delivering it in the future. So this much broader perspective is going to keep him and his company relevant. A few of my takeaways. First, the definitions, and I think that this is really interesting because we talked about connected health, telemedicine, telehealth, remote patient monitoring, And this is an evolving field, and each one of these definitions has been evolving in the past as well. So I I guess uh, one thing to keep an eye on is if you're in a field that is evolving, don't assume that you're talking about the same thing when you're throwing out terms. Make sure that you validate that you're both on the same page when you're discussing a term. The second thing is I was really struck by when when he talked about the accuracy of the device may not be the most important thing. As we're developing products, we think that we know what, uh, what the customer really needs and wants. And accuracy in the medical device field has really been one of those things that we're really uh, honing in on when we're developing product. But in this particular aspect, in this particular product, the accuracy is not the most important thing early on. It's really monitoring changes. So I guess uh, the question got for you, is, you know, is, have you really defined exactly what the needs are, not necessarily what you think the needs are? The final thing is, um, he discussed friction points, and he defined it as you know, friction points are points that cause things not to scale. And I thought that this was really interesting as well because um, he defined each one of those, those friction points and then removed them systematically to be able to provide the best product. So what are your, your friction points? And uh, if you, when you identify those, just attack each one of those because they're an op- obstacle to your success. Uh, As you continue to attack them, remove one at a time, one at a time, you're removing the friction to adoption. Thank you for listening. Make sure you get episodes downloaded to your device automatically by liking or subscribing to the Mastering Medical Device podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please spread the word and tell a friend or two to listen to the Mastering Medical Device podcast as interviews like today's can help you become a more effective medical device leader. Work hard. Be kind.